This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or in streaming services and connect and compare it to older films, perhaps by the same filmmaker or uh, films in the same genre. Sometimes we give love to the work of an actor or a screenwriter. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and critic. I'm the host of The Knox Office on CBC Information Morning. And my blog is called Flaw in the Iris and it can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name's Stephen Cook, and I'm a Halifax freelancer and film enthusiast. And on today's episode of Lends Me Your Ears, we are spinning the dial of destiny. This is the new Indiana Jones film, the fifth in the series, and we're taking a look at a few other adventure movies from Days Gone Past. So thank you for tuning in to listen to us ramble on about film, and we're going to take you on an adventure. Do you want an adventure? We're going to take you there. Welcome to the jungle. And welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears on this adventure-filled episode as we take a look at the latest and last installment. Oh, so they say. <laughs> I, I, you know, according to Harrison Ford, he said it before, but he's saying it again. And at 80, 81, whatever he is now, I think it's uh, it's time to take him at his word. Uh, yes, the last go-round for Indiana Jones, Daredevil Archaeologist, and uh, his, uh, his last mission to find the dial of destiny and i said it properly because i've been saying dial of density a whole lot. that seems a little unfair but you know i <laughs> I, I, I think i got that from an episode of the tick or somebody had a date a date with we have a date Den- with density, density. <laughs> that sounds like a tick joke yeah yeah pretty much but uh you know it's it's uh it's been widely hyped i feel like for the last couple of years we've just been hearing about this film and and you know what what they've been going through to 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 put Harrison through his final action film pace it's not that this necessarily his final action film who knows what he could come up with uh you know in the next little while he's been very busy on on uh, streaming and and uh, other places so you never know don't count him yeah. out yet but yeah seriously i mean he he got back to to han solo yep. he got back to rick deckard he's been doing these like revisiting his greatest hits and giving them a new chapter and i i've actually mostly here for it. Um, though I got to say, and I don't know if I've said this on this show before, but uh, his work on uh, Shrinking, which is the uh, Jason Siegel show on, um, on Apple TV is spectacular. If you're a Harrison Ford fan, check that out because he is so funny in that, in that show. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's great when he gets a chance to be funny. <laughs> we forget that he's, he's got great comic timing and, and, and that's always been kind of an essential part of at least the the best films and the best scenes in the Indiana Jones saga. And, you know, there's certainly some of that to be found in uh, the Dial of Density. Des- Destiny. I See, that was com- that was not planned. Uh, I'm going to be and it won't be the last time, I'm sure. But uh, but of course, uh, it's it's not, um, you know, it's not Steven Spielberg behind the camera. And I think uh, I think we can uh, you can tell that from from the way it moves from the way it uh, cuts from from the way the action scenes are set up. And uh, James Mangold, uh, who's certainly a director whose work I've enjoyed going back to 
his uh, maybe I think his first feature heavy, and he's done interesting things with yeah, Copland. Copland is a great one. So serious drama, but also uh, a keen hand with genre pictures. Obviously, Logan, his kind of final Wolverine story uh, film, is a, was a great success. So uh, he, he's certainly someone who can do a bigger budget film and, and also a, kind of a genre picture. And uh, you know, I, I think we have slightly different opinions on how well he fared with this installment in the uh, the indie series. Well, I mean, I that'd be interesting. Actually, I don't know how you really feel about it. I, I thought this was a fun time, like a good, decent popcorn movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, it's weighed every installment in this franchise, I feel like, is compared to the first, which right. is kind of, for me anyway, it's kind of impeachable. Like, you cannot get better than Raiders of the Lost Ark. It has held up as both an incredibly fun summer adventure movie, but also a film that is so well made that uh, I think it can compare to any of Spielberg's, you know, more serious films as well. And I put, I like, air quotes, serious films. I mean, it is just so much fun. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I know that there are some that think that the third film, the uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade with Sean Connery, uh, is the, the best and it's certainly many people's most favorite of the five films in the franchise. I uh, beg to differ. I mean, I understand the appeal of Sean Connery, of course. Yes. We've talked about him a <laughs> yeah, lot on this podcast. A whole lot. He is amazing. But uh, there was just something a little bit too, I guess, uh, family friendly or too just nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Like there is a, um, there is kind of a silliness to it that. And, and, you know, I don't – I think you could say a lot about James Mangold. He is not a silly filmmaker. His films, no. he tends to the serious, and that is reflected in this film. You know, I've read, I read a great uh, piece online about uh, exploring how this film is actually, while being nostalgic naturally because we all love the, the series and we all love Harrison Ford and he's terrific in it, he is a man in his late 70s when he made the film, and that informs everything. It, it informs the fact that his character who – well, we're, we're now in 1969 in this story, is looking back at his life, and he has devoted his life to the past, to digging it up, to saving it, to remembering it. And, uh, you know, of course, the whole grave robber thing is, uh, and the, the white hero going to take antiquities from elsewhere in the world for having to have him show on a, in a Western museum. That's a whole other issue to, to, to discuss. That hasn't aged too well. But, you know, this character is slightly, when we first meet him, he's beaten up. Like he, his, he's alone in this New York apartment in the 60s. He's out of touch with people's interests, which is for the future. And, you know, the men who walked on the moon and all of that. And, uh, yeah, he's sad because he doesn't, he, there's just no purpose. He doesn't know what's, he's about to retire from his teaching gig. Um, but then his goddaughter shows up. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and that is a, uh, is, is kind of puts a fire under his butt again. And, uh, and off he goes with her there, there's a, uh, of course there is a MacGuffin and that is called the Antikythera mechanism, which is a device, an actual device that actually in real life, it exists. It's, uh, it, uh, invented by Greek mathematician Archimedes. And, uh, the dial is actually in two pieces when we first 
find out about it, and it's in a flashback sequence during the beginning of the film. Anyway, I'm rambling, but this is the crux of it. There is a thing that he, that everybody wants, including Nazis, <laughs> and uh, you know, and so yes, yeah, so Indy and his goddaughter, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who I think is amazing. I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and I, I'll watch her in anything, anything she's in as an actor, and anything she writes, I think, is worth checking out. And I think she makes this film what it is. She is so much fun. Um, and then Mads Mikkelsen makes a terrific villain, who which we already knew, I think, yeah. from his terrific villains of the past. Yeah, because he kind of comes and goes throughout the film. And so you need an actor like that who'll make an impression with every every raised eyebrow and every gesture. And, and he's certainly the perfect actor for that role. You know, with his, you know the, the, the joke is that the Germans don't want to play Nazis anymore. Uh, so they have to get Scandinavians to do it. Um, and uh, he does it here with, with gusto. I think, I think he's, you know, I mean, he plays it straight. He's not being arch or camp or, or any of that stuff. But I don't know, I guess because it's Mads Mikkelsen, you believe he's capable of evil. He's just able to kind of project that. And we've seen that, you know, going back to when most people first saw him in Casino Royale. Yeah, exactly. And and certainly, I mean, you know, in, in The Pusher, which is the early Danish yes. films that he made, he's he's quite a threatening character in that. Uh, but um, yeah, no, it's it's he makes a great presence here. And uh, and the, yeah, so this this device, when it's complete, apparently has the power to help the user locate naturally occurring fissures in time. I think I've got that right. Yes. Uh, and so that's what Mads Mikkelsen's character wants. Uh, of course, Indy wants to keep it away from the Nazis, but then, you know, gets involved in a different way. They, you know, fly to the, the Middle East, to uh, North Africa, and there's some stuff happening there. Um, I wanted to ask you, Stephen. Some stuff happens. Some stuff happens there. You know, you know, stuff <laughs> well, indie it's, stuff. It's kind of yeah. You got You kind of, you know, make it interesting until the the final act. Yeah. Uh, showdown. A so. number of chases with the bad guys through narrow streets, and then you know you go into some kind of tomb or 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 you know rocky place where something's hidden and there's going to be a booby trap. I mean, these are kind of the things that you expect. Yeah. Um, and I quite like Boyd Holbrook as his uh, his flunky. He's got the the. the the crew cut and yes the mustache and he's 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 very threatening he kind of looks like a young brad pitt like i kept thinking like when i first saw the trailer i thought that's who it was like, <laughs> oh they de-aged brad pitt for this as well but no it's it's uh, boyd holbrook who's quite a good actor yeah and this is a pretty meaty role for him yeah and he plays an american nazi basically yes, exactly um but uh yeah that that opening segment i mean part of the thing about indiana jones movies is that they start like on the run, like there's this, inc usually, I mean, all of them, in fact, I'll even say that about the Crystal Skull, that its opening segment was really exciting. Um, this one, the problem I have with it, and this is gonna reveal my bias against CGI generally, but I'm much more of a fan of what they do in, say, um, you know, John Wick, where you get a lot of physical choreographed action rather than uh, a lot of like ones and zeros. And uh, and this is one of the things I think that Spielberg did so well. I mean, he made Raiders of the Lost Ark on a budget. He was very concerned about yes. not going over those budgets and because he wanted to prove after 1941 that he could do that. And so as a result, you get a lot of sort of in-camera action and a lot of st great stunt work and a lot of location work. And that's what I really loved about that film. Those are the things I love the most, I should say. Uh, with the new film, with this opening, you know, I don't know that it, it's there's a it's a rainstorm, there's a train, there's a motorcycle chase, there's a, a fight on the top of the train. This is stuff that we've certainly seen in Indiana Jones movies, but in this 
this one, I don't even know if they're ever outside the studio. It just feels so glossily uh, computer animated to me. And and of course, and then there's the aspect of de-aging indie, which is kind of a separate thing, but I also found that hard to see past. Yeah, I, I thought the de-aging was done about as well as I've seen it done up to this point. Mm. Uh, certainly better than in The Irishman, which is probably the most famous example of that that we've ha- we've had i mean there have been other examples of it uh both good and bad and i thought it was I, I guess what they've done is they've kind of scanned old footage and and they, i think they've come up with a new way of doing it they have oh. enough footage of of you know of indie's facial expressions that they've kind of graphed and so it does even though it is kind of a weird computery graft kind of thing it is a little more realistic so that, you know they're obviously honing this process which is, you know, for better or for worse, it's kind of a scary thought. In fact, but although today I was thinking, well, what stars of today are we even going to care enough about to want to see them de-aged? You know, just hire an old or younger version, you know, lookalike. So yeah. I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know how what other uses we'll have for this thing down yeah, the, the road. The star but, system has very much changed. Yeah, it's true. Like, I mean, you know, do we do we need to see a de-aged Oscar Isaacs in 40 years? I don't know. But uh, we need to hire somebody who kind of looks like him to play play his part in flashbacks or whatever. But, uh, you know, and there's scenes where the, the stuntman on, like, on the motorcycle is wearing a, a Harrison Ford mask, so um, which they probably digitally messed around with as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, some of that stuff, but it, it, it works in fits and starts. I thought some, some aspects of it were really effective and other parts were painfully obvious and 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 so you know there's there's that disjointed nature of the effects because of course they're farmed out to different places all around the world so uh you know it's hard to get a consistent look or a consistent degree of of uh execution i guess so you know you go from a pretty decent looking de-aged uh indiana jones in like the barn scene where the floor collapses or whatever when the bomb comes down but then you get like that bad like phone game level animation of him running across the top of a train car which uh-huh. you know everybody's pointed out you know that shot should have been either just cut it or you know redo it but because it's just so painfully obvious uh and and you know you, you see better work in in video games so uh you know th- once we get out of that then in, you know the, the film i think you know i'm a little more comfortable with where the, the film goes but um so it's kind of like it works about 75% of the time, but those those remaining chunks of it were pretty jarring, I thought. Yeah, I'm with you there, though I would say the ratio is less than 75%. Okay, well. uh, and I mean, it, and I'm taken out of the film too often that way. Yeah. Now, of course, I've spoken often on this podcast about, you know, I I would prefer... <laughs> I prefer miniatures and real, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, even though I did kind of make fun of a movie on the last time we had yes. our episode for the miniatures and the, the helicopters and on a, on they, a train Yeah, well, they were, heist. you know, they looked like they were straight out of, uh, you know, a, 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 one of the lower end Japanese monster movies. So I can, I can see that. I found it kind of charming, but completely obviously fake, you know, like Thunderbirds level kind of yeah. effects yeah. in the middle of a pretty grim, gritty crime drama mm-hmm. which is just kind of weird but uh but but here at least we got toby jones yeah he, he he definitely adds something to that whole sequence and and he's also in the flashbacks but you know he's 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 a welcome presence here and i wasn't sure about what his character was going to be like if he's going to 
turn on Indy like so many characters do over the course of the series. But uh, but but Toby Jones is a great choice to play his like friend and British uh, mentor during those later war years. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um, and yeah, and then when we get to you know the next segment, which is in New York City in 1969, the the stuff there's a lot of footage. There's sort of a bit of a chase on a rooftop, and like New York in the background looks incredible. Like I was completely convinced there's a, a ticker tape parade and every part of that. I was like, wow, this is really cool. Which apparently they filmed in Glasgow. Or That's Edinburgh? what I hear. Yeah. Edinburgh? Glasgow. Oh, Glasgow. Glasgow. Yeah, yeah. Weird. Yeah, very strange. But they, I found that utterly convincing. All of that stuff was great. Um, so, you know, it's, it isn't consistent. But, I mean, I think... I think suspending your disbelief on a lot of this stuff really makes this work. Um, and and yeah, like I mentioned, the the aspect of it being an escapist adventure collides with the aspect of it of an older indie dealing with with feeling irrelevant and um, and you know the danger of nostalgia to a certain degree and wanting to to you know embrace the present and and do your best with what's happening right now uh, and and yeah you know I I, uh, I was down with that I think you know it's funny it's we talk about how there's the experience of watching a film in the cinema and then there's the experience of like digesting it later and those two parts are both equally important to me in terms of like enjoying the film and i think the amount that i've talked about indiana jones and the dial of destiny uh has helped me even though i was fairly critical of it walking out of the the film and when i wrote my review i think i've i'm i'm actually kind of more fond of it now and to the point where i might want to go see it again with somebody who hasn't seen it just to get a sense of what they think um yeah and and uh it's great to see Harrison Ford so, you know, fit and and engaged. Like he really, you really do get a sense that he is embodying this character in a way, maybe different than we've ever seen him do it before by virtue of his age. I, and I think uh, I get the impression, I've heard a couple of interviews uh, with different people involved in the show and different creatives, uh, Kathleen Kennedy and uh, Frank Marshall, I think we're on the Empire Film Podcast yeah, yeah. talking about it. And, and they were talking about how, you know, Harrison is very involved. It, you know, he didn't just come in, pick up the script and go. You know, they, they consulted with him about what he wanted to see for his character. You know, they're all sort of keenly aware that this is very probably the very last time he'll put on the hat and pick up the whip. So, uh, and and apparently he was adamant about, you know, the having the 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 wear of the years uh show on him and and that be a central point in in how indy's portrayed about you know thinking about the people that he's lost over the years oh. and, and and the prices that he's paid for his uh his particular pursuit of adventure and and i won't say treasure but but you know the the pursuit of knowledge and the the preservation of history and all that even though as as a one uh, super cut on youtube points out he's one of the world's worst archaeologists <laughs> you know, for all the ways that he's you know destroyed and mangled and yeah and yeah treated artifacts over the years uh, Stephen, you rewatched, you know crystal skull which i think uh from 2008 which was the fourth yeah. film and i think generally speaking i think it's going to go down in in uh in history as the least loved 
indie. I think this one, for the most part, people like this one more than they did Crystal Skull. Now, when you mentioned Kathleen Kennedy, she talked about how Crystal Skull, they all decided, all the filmmakers all had kids, and they decided they were going to make this film, but they were going to make sure, they weren't going to go on location. So they're going to try and make it all in, yeah. in the United States, in America, and use special effects to hide the fact they were. And I think that's, if I had one main complaint about that film, it's that very thing. It's like, location work for these films is so important. You got to believe that you're there. And too often, especially in the late running of, of, of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, you, you know, you're in a studio somewhere and it's just CGI and it's ridiculous and it's silly. And, you know, I was on board with some of the more let's say, extraterrestrial aspects of the film. But, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, but it because um, it reminded me of Tintin, which yeah, we're exactly. going to talk about. But, um, yeah, but it, it, it is just, it, I really felt like they, they over-relied on special effects to the detriment of the film. Yeah, I think that's the case. I mean, it's really apparent during the kind of nonstop chase scene through the Amazon where mm-hmm. there's, there, there's also some... some logistical problems with that whole chase scene in that they destroy the machinery that creates the road partway through. So you're trying to figure out where all this road comes from. And that was a major craw uh, problem. But, uh, you know, that that's just this, this sort of endless jungle thing that they're trying to, it's almost like trying to recreate the speeder chase in, in uh, Return of the Jedi or something like that. And it just goes on and on past the point of, Credulity. I don't know. I shouldn't bring the word credulity into it, considering <laughs> some of the plot aspects of Dial of Destiny that we haven't really even gone into. But um, you know, just pare it back. It didn't. It didn't. You know, just get them to the cliff and into the river and onto the, you know, the 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 big temple scene at the end. Um, the, that really got stretched out too long. And maybe somebody could have told Steven Spielberg, like, okay, that you know, we get it, but. Uh, for whatever reason, he, uh, they just did this long, extended, probably storyboarded and carefully planned sequence. But it's so fake, <laughs> especially when you bring in the monkeys and and uh, and uh, and his son Mutt. May he rest in peace. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> swinging through the vines and all that kind. Of, it's like, you know, you, you can you can push some things until they bend, but you really shouldn't push them until they break. And they broke quite a few times over the course of the film, I thought. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. But I like the opening. I, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, the fridge and the atomic blast. I'm like, actually, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, I love well the fridge done. and the atomic blast and yeah. the creepy mannequins and, and all that stuff. And, and uh, you know, the idea of, the, you know, that, that these, you know, Russians have infiltrated, uh, you know, American army base security and all that stuff. And that stuff works. And Kate Blanchett is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is the saving grace of that film. Like if it wasn't for her, it would be even more <laughs> of a, of a disappointment than it already is. And she's, she's terrific from start to finish. And, uh, and, and thank goodness for her. And, um, you know, and also Karen Allen, we get Karen Allen back in the fold for that film. And then she's a welcome presence. She makes the most of what she's given to work with. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the 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 lack of um, of real texture to to a lot of it is uh, is is a real problem. Especially when I I, you know, I also went back and rewatched uh, Last Crusade, which I don't think I've seen since the nineties. Uh, you know, I, I saw it when it came out in seventy millimeter at Park Lane, the last seventy millimeter film shown in Halifax before they mothballed the the. Uh, the projectors for that format and uh it was it was fantastic uh to see it you know on that 
super huge, super clear format uh, on film. But, um, you know, like it opens with that great sequence in um, Monument Valley in Utah, you know, those those great John Fordian uh, locations. And it's kind of cool that and then we get John Ford in the Fablemans at the end of the Fablemans. So there's that nice connection there. And uh, River Phoenix, you know, it's great to see him in that uh, playing young Indy again. Yeah, and that's that an scene. amazing opening. And then, sure. then and then it cuts to the scene on the boat. Uh, where they're on that freighter and mm-hmm. and uh, and it's a you know it's it's a great sequence it's very simple it's all on the boat you know it's probably a set that's rocking back and forth and they've got water and you know and explosions and stuff and probably you know they're probably in the studio tank at one of the studios but but it, you know it works because it's all tactile and 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 not digital and it's it's a real physical uh, kind of situation that is really deftly handled and uh you know so going back and seeing that and then re-watching uh, crystal skull it was you know it's like oh yeah they could have been more of that yeah yeah so all right so just to say i think you and i we actually do see more or yeah. less eye to eye about dial of density um, <laughs> <laughs> of destiny and uh but but i mean if you were to to uh rate the films do you have a, a sense of your favorites or your least favorites uh lost crusade or Last Crusade is probably my favorite of the bunch. I did not see the first two when they came out. I saw them later on video. And, uh, you know, as I said the last time we we talked about these films, I found the first one kind of mechanical, kind of, uh, you know, like extremely well made. It's like, you know, it's like this beautifully crafted, kind of clockwork thing where you just kind of wind it up and watch it go. But uh, I I do feel that, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of, uh, I like the emotion and heart that Sean Connery and the relationship he has with his son uh, brings to that third film, uh, even though there, there are other problems with that, that, that film, but I find they're pretty minor uh, in comparison. Okay, and on this episode of Lends Me Your Ears, that's what it's called, uh, <laughs> uh, we are talking adventure films springboarding off of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and the Indiana Jones uh, series entirely. Now, we know uh, the the myth and the legend of this franchise is that uh, uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg loved the uh, serials of their youth, these sort of low-budget uh, adventure films of the 30s and 40s. We didn't go that far back, but we did go back to a film from 1964 called That Man from Rio. And this is a film you suggested, Stephen. I had no knowledge of it previously. Directed by Philip DeBroca. And uh, it stars John Paul Belmondo, who is an actor I basically associate with Breathless, for the most part. Here he is a whole lot more animated. I was amazed by That Man from Rio, which is a film that, uh, it is a genuine adventure film. uh, And it is... It is so physical, the demands of this actor. I was so impressed with how much he has to do in terms of running, jumping, riding, um, flying, <laughs> jumping out of planes. <laughs> That's a lot. Like, he really does a lot. He's So John Paul Belmondo is Adrian. He's a friend of Agnes, or Agnes. Uh, this is a French film played by Francoise Dorliac. And she is the daughter of a professor who was killed. They say he was poisoned. Um, and so he, the professor was one of three experts Explorers who came back from the Amazon with each with little statues of inestimable value, relics of some lost civilization. So when we come into the story, one of the statues has been stolen from a collection in Paris. And then Agnes is 
abducted, presumably because she knows where the other statue her father had is hidden. And Belmondo's Adrian, he's a soldier and a friend of Agnes. Am I pronouncing that right? Agnes? Agnes? Anyway, Agnes in French. Agnes. <laughs> yeah. Um, he... Uh, he chases her to Rio. He gets on a plane somehow. He rescues her, and then he picks up a shoeshine kid who turns out to be kind of his own short round, at least for the middle act. Uh, eventually, they shake the kid, and the plot continues pell-mell to Brasilia, which at the time, I guess, was just still under construction, and then into the jungle. This is a remarkably funny movie. Incredible locations in and around Rio and Brasilia in the 60s. Belmondo is impressively physical, as I mentioned. It's got a real James Bond vibe to it, except just a little less serious, you know? Uh, it is is, it is, uh, I, I just, I, I loved all the scenes of him just like, and I guess he did a bunch of his own stunt work. I mean, yep, it's, yep. it's a special, this is a special film people should check out. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, the, it's been restored, you know, in the last 10 years or so. Uh, Cohen Media put it out on a Blu ray. Uh, TCM have shown it, and they'll probably show it again. Uh, I'm not sure what streaming uh, platforms or services it might be on, but uh, there, there are various ways you can find a copy of this film, and it, it's a lot of fun. And, I remember watching it for the first time. I think Critics' Choice had a VHS copy. That's where I first saw this film. And shout out to Leanne Gill. So yes, hey Leanne. Uh, <laughs> and many years of, of watching and being kind and rewinding um, this uh, this film by um, uh, by a director who, who's kind of known for popular entertainments in France. He got to start working, you know, on, at various jobs on some of the French New Wave films. He worked on the the, the Four Hundred Blows and some other projects, but but. For the most part, he was making sort of popular entertainments, uh, and like uh, King of Hearts, I think is his best known film, and it was kind of an English language foreign film hit um, set in a, a village in, during the Second World War, but uh, and, and that was a massive hit. But he also made these kind of a, a grand adventure and action films, often with Belmondo and other uh, Philippe Noiret uh, shows up in some of his films. But um, but here, he, I guess. DeBroca wanted to make a live action version of the famous Tintin comics. Like he, he, you know, he, he thought it would be a cool thing to, to bring that, uh, those stories to life. And, and but, uh, Hergé, who is the artist behind Tintin and the, the roving boy reporter, uh, storyline, uh, did, you know, really wanted to keep a firm grip on, on any Tintin related stuff and wasn't going to let some outsider or some, some, uh, you know, uh, some maverick filmmaker have a, have his way with the character. And in fact, they were planning to make some live action Tintin movies, uh, which uh, they made two of them uh, in, in the, uh, the mid 60s. So basically, uh, they took one of the Tintin books, The Broken Ear, and changed it just enough to get around the copyright issues. Well, I think there probably were still some issues after the film came out because the storyline is very similar, uh, involving a um, a stolen artifact uh, that was taken from an, uh, an Amazon jungle uh, tribe and, and various parties are looking for these statuettes uh, and uh, the secrets that they contain. Now they change what the statuettes do or what they contain or what their secret is um, for the purposes of this story and for the purposes of copyright. But it's, it's very similar. It does wind up with Tintin going you know, in a canoe down the Amazon, just like uh, Belmondo's uh, soldier does here, you know, uh, with uh, chasing his uh, damsel in distress and trying to get the, um, the evil bunch that uh, are trying to use the statue to, uh, to gain even greater treasure from this uh, long lost tribe. So uh, it's basically, if you've read the broken ear and then you watch this movie, you'll kind of go, 
Well, it's the same story pretty much, only, you know, with this kind of more adult twist and, and, and take on it. You know, clearly, um, you know, Adrian uh, Belmondo's character and Agnes are, are very much uh, in love and they're very much have an adult relationship, something that never happens in Tintin comics. Yeah. But uh, but other aspects of it are kind of more cartoonish in a in a comic book kind of way. Yeah, yeah, it's a really fun film, and I gotta think that Spielberg had seen it because there's a scene late in the running here that reminded me of the sort of room of uh, the, the city map, whatever it was called from Indiana Jones, right, yeah. Raiders Lost Ark, the, the Well of Souls, or what have you. <laughs> this is an ancestor of Indy, but you mentioned you mentioned Tintin. I mean, Tintin is is a cultural phenomenon. Never really happened in in North America, and. You know, we've seen we've seen the comics developed. I mean, Spielberg himself, and along with uh, Peter Jackson, made a, a feature film, an animated feature film uh, of Tintin. I mean, I didn't love it as a Tintin fan. Yeah. I thought it was. I thought there were things to recommend it, but it felt like it was a, 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 a removed from the, a lot of the things I really loved about Tintin, which was slapstick and silly humor, and you know. Of course, again, going back to international locations in the animated, you know, in the ma- animated way, you couldn't quite grasp the same yeah. the same thing. Uh, but there were there were, as you mentioned, some '60s Tintin films, uh, and there's been animated versions of it. Of course, a series, and there was Lake of Sharks, which I guess is on Amazon Prime. Yeah, now. there's there's a bunch of interesting Tintin properties available through Amazon Prime. Uh, the Lake of Sharks, uh, which was an original story written for the screen and then they turned it into a book by using the cells from the production and uh, or images from from the film and and sort of made a comic book out of it which is how I first experienced it it's a, it's a kind of a weird film because they bring in these these two young uh, this brother and sister character who are not canon in the Tintin universe and they're also not drawn in the same manner so they kind of st- stick out like a sore thumb and they also throw in musical numbers which are really not needed. <laughs> There's a love song to a donkey. Um, yeah, not... Uh, so it's, it's, it's a weird... I mean, it's, it should be seen if you're a fan, just for the novelty of it. And there was also, uh, I, I think, uh, The Prisoners of the Sun. They, were, they, they did a, an animated version of the, the whole Inca um, kind of storyline. Was, so it was turned into a film, and I believe that is also on, uh, on Prime. I think it might just be in French with English subtitles. I'm not 100% sure. But when you just punch in Tintin on Prime, uh, a bunch of things come up uh, other than just the Nelvana-produced TV series, which was done, I think, in the, the early 90s, which is quite well done and was very faithful to the books. Right, right. Okay, well, I mean, I still need to see those live-action uh, Tintin they're films. They're pretty but... interesting because they, they do, like some of the more adult material from the books does seep in. They, they 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 kind of uh, you know tone things down for the uh, animated series that was done for television because you know Tintin's involved and there's like opium smuggling and and people get murdered and that kind of thing and they they really had to kind of lighten it up a little bit for, mm, for gotcha. the younger audience yeah yeah but the the films are a little more adult uh, you know there, there's certainly some real world kind of fighting and and and, uh, and and danger and that kind of thing and uh, yeah they just found actors that looked like the characters um, you know dressed them up in the appropriate costumes and it's kind of weird seeing them in the real world <laughs> in, in look like I, I watched the Golden Fleece this morning and they're they're in Istanbul in Greece and and they're on real locations real streets in uh, in Ankara and other places, and uh, but but looking very cartoony. <laughs> it's like doing doing cosplay in the real world. It's it, it's a very unusual experience, but but still uh, kind of fun to watch. Yeah, and I would say that about the animated the Spielberg film as well. It is also 
fun yeah. to watch, but it just it feels a little too different from my experience of the comics to uh, to to really connect with me as a fan. I guess is is the way I felt about it when it came out. The, the funny thing, I, I rewatched it uh, on Saturday, and I, it kind of highlighted the some of the problems I had with it. Like, uh, there's this need to have all these big action scenes. Uh, in the film. So, you know, there's this crazy chase after uh, a falcon that's carrying these three parchments that they need to find the treasure. And this this sort of crazy um, continuing shot kind of chase through this marketplace. And then almost immediately after that, there's another big action film scene involving these cranes on a dock and, and these giant container ship cranes crashing into each other. It's like, okay, we don't need that much action. I mean, Tintin, there is action in Tintin, but it's also character, comedy, um, you know, the sense of place you get. I mean, the Kerge was very big on establishing location in the comics, and, and the movie kind of forgets some of that. And, mm-hmm. and the script, uh, the script uh, isn't, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very visual, but, but it leaves out a lot of the kind of character interaction and, and some of the... The interesting uh, character design of, of, of the books. Uh, the the sequence, the opening sequence of the film, I thought was done in a really interesting style. And I thought, you know what? I would watch a film that was done in that more 2D, but you know, with depth kind of style of the of the uh, title sequence. And then oh. they, but then they cut to like this this kind of very computery 3D. Yeah. kind of environment uh, with with a computer animated Herge drawing a caricature of Tintin in the style of the comic book which right. is, is an interesting nod and, and I thought was kind of nicely done but I just thought you know what the the flavor of the books is actually uh, a lot better portrayed in the credit sequence and and I kind of like oh I, I could watch a film in that style but you know they'd never make that obviously yeah well it's unfortunate and that's solidly in the uncanny valley which is part of the problem there I think um, you know we should talk a little bit about another franchise that was very indebted to Indiana Jones and that's the romancing the stone which I think they originally thought there were going to be three films there are only two because the second one basically killed the franchise yeah, there was a third storyline sort of planned out but uh, yeah, nobody yeah. wanted to do it. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I'm going back to watch Robert Zemeckis' Romancing the Stone from 1984. You know, that uh, that was, Zemeckis, of course, was a real force in Hollywood movies. It's sort of, a, you know, originally an apprentice from Spielberg who went on to make, uh, most famously, Back to the Future. This film is actually quite a delight. Uh, it has been largely forgotten, culturally speaking. That could be because it's also full of stereotypes of uh, <laughs> Colombians, yes. uh, you know, which is, is definitely a problem. But it has a terrific role for Kathleen Turner. One of the, I mean, if people forget what a big star Kathleen Turner was in the 80s and how good she was, you need to watch this. She plays Joan Wilder, who is a romance novel writer. Her sister gets into some trouble in Cartagena, and um, her brother-in-law has been cut into little pieces. Uh, But before he was, he mailed a map to Joan for safekeeping, and now Joan's sister being in trouble, Joan has to travel down to Cartagena to bring the map and save her sister. Naturally, things don't go as planned, and she's very much a fish out of water and she gets on the wrong bus and ends up in the mountains and at the wrong end of a gun barrel meets a guy named Jack Colton played by Michael Douglas he's a roguish American desperate for you know riches and to buy a yacht and sail away and we also get Danny DeVito as Ralph and Zach Norman as Ira two 
cousins from New York who, let's say, have criminal enterprises going on in Colombia, and they're at odds with the head of the secret police, played by Manuel Ojeda. Um, and Ira gets a great catchphrase. Look at those snappers. Um, this, is a, this is really fun. And, you know, I did appreciate this is about how a romance novelist who has no practical experience of adventure, who, whose head is just lost in books, finds courage to face real threats. The movie is hilarious. It's not above a little physical humor, like having DeVito fall off things all the time. Apparently rated PG, but it's pretty adult in places, too. We just, yeah. We're just we just not used to seeing people, you know, have simulated sex in movies anymore. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, but Kathleen Turner is incredible. You know, the real a star of my teen years. Uh, she could be glamorous. She could be awkward. Um, you know, and, and it's also not terribly culturally sensitive. That's those are my takeaways, I think, of this <laughs> film. Yeah, it's great. And I'd, I'd sort of forgotten how kind of nasty Danny DeVito's character Ralph is uh, that, you know, that uh, for some reason I had it in my mind that they were kind of teaming up with him. But in fact, he's their nemesis throughout the entire film, you know, trying to trying to get to this um, trying to get to this jewel. It's, you know, hidden in the in the the jungle somewhere. So uh, it's a great role for him and he gets to be kind of nasty, but also, you know, has a lot of bad things befall him because of his own uh, duplicitousness. And I, I just like that kind of counterbalance between him and the, the romantic leads. And, and uh, you know, it's funny that I was just thinking the other day, it's like, I, you know, I could do some more Danny DeVito and things. And then, of course, I saw the trailer for the new Haunted Mansion and thought, well, maybe yeah. maybe I need to rethink that. <laughs> yeah, and they did get together for a sequel in yes. 1985, a year later. So they turned that around pretty quick. Um, the Jewel of the Nile, which... Uh, I guess has a decent uh, concept, but is not without all the fun of the first movie. It is, um, yeah, it, it's. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. It just, it just kind of falls apart by the second act. It just doesn't, and and it has none of the. I guess all the fun that I really liked the first film, but it does have all the the cultural stereotyping, unfortunately. Yeah, it's got a weird mock Nuremberg rally for. You know, for, I, I guess, Arabs or something like that at the end of the film, which is just seems to be, A, poorly done and B, in super bad taste. And, and just a lot of it left a bad taste in my mouth. Directed by Louis Teague this time around, who is probably best known for, I don't know, Cujo, maybe, <laughs> the Stephen King adaptation. His career kind of goes into the toilet immediately after this film because it was not a hit. Um, you know, he'd, he'd come from the ranks of the, uh, the, um, the Roger Corman uh, film Sausage Factory, and that's kind of where he learned his skills. And I and I feel like that l style of filmmaking, a very prosaic type of uh, filmmaking, is what goes into the action scenes and and uh, and you know the whole production really. And and from all reports, Kathleen Turner did not want to make this film. That's what I heard. Yeah. Was kind of held to the fire by some contractual obligations and and you get a sense of that uh, over the course of the film yeah. and she's as game as she can be but but apparently it was not a pleasant experience for her and yeah. uh, you know i watched it out of curiosity and i enjoyed it in fits and starts but but some of it really just goes off the map yeah and you know it's funny despite that she clearly enjoyed douglas and devito because they made another movie together it's not in this franchise but war of the roses a very different kind of film for the for them to work yeah together i haven't on. seen that since it came out I'll, I'll, i should see how it aged 
and welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears for another look at some interesting recent adventure films or films from our lifetime. It's funny, I was thinking about the Indiana Jones uh, and the Dial of Destiny and that it actually takes place during my lifetime, which is something I never thought the Indiana Jones saga would do. I mean, I was probably like, I think I'm two, two years old at the, the time of the events in the, of the film, but but at the same time, I was kind of thinking, about, oh, I'm on the planet when this is going on, you know? <laughs> I, I and, wasn't uh, quite there, but I, I uh, yeah, I, I hear I hear what you're saying. It is it is kind of weird to think that uh, that Indy is caught up with uh, with my life story in a way <laughs> that uh, uh, you know that is kind of uh, you know makes made the whole storyline about aging and getting older um, a little more poignant for me as I get into my twilight years as it were but uh, but of course uh, you know th- these kinds of films uh, are always going to be popular on on some level and, and and a recent film from last year that was a moderate hit and I think uh, was fairly well received by uh, by critics got pretty decent reviews and that's the lost city um, with uh, with America's sweetheart Sandra Bullock she's <laughs> She's back on the big screen as as Loretta Sage. She's a, a writer of kind of cheesy romance novels. She she, she has a past that is involved in archaeology and history, and but uh, there was more money to be made in in books about uh, heroines and and uh, heroes with uh, with you know ripped abs and all that long hair and all that kind of thing. So it's kind of making fun of those novels with the with Fabio on the cover and that thing. In this case, our Fabio, as they even call him in the film, is Channing Tatum as Alan. He's the cover model for her books and the kind of the, if not the inspiration, at least the visual inspiration for her the hero of her books. And and he's kind of a little self-deluded and then he start kind of imagines himself as being like the hero in her books. Um and uh, they wind up in a real life adventure when a, when a kind of a mad uh, megalomaniac played by Daniel Radcliffe, who's having a blast as Abigail Fairfax. Great name. Great and name. You know, yeah. Abig- Abigail, it, it can be masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone whose middle name is Allison, I, I kind of feel that. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know many male Abigails, but I'm sure they're out there. Um, he basically kidnaps uh, Loretta to take her to the jungle to help him decipher some clues to a, a huge treasure so he can, um, you know, make basically uh, surpass his much more successful brother, uh, who's, I guess, a media mogul. And so, so that's, that's basically the setup. Uh, you know, he kidnaps Loretta and, uh, Channing Tatum's Alan goes uh, off to rescue her. And at one point enlists a, uh, uh, kind of a robust, rugged problem solver uh, played by Brad Pitt, who is basically a glorified cameo. But you know, when he's on screen, the the, the film is probably at its best, and uh, and so that's it. You know, we we it's it's obviously not very loosely inspired by *Romancing the Stone*. It's basically the same setup as *Romancing the Stone*, and uh, you know, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't do so well with the comparison uh, to a much more uh, better known and more successful film. It, it's, uh, I, you know, I enjoyed it. It's, I hate to use the um, damning of faint praise, fun time waster, but, <laughs> but you know, as, uh, Sandra Bullock still holds a lot of appeal for me. She's, she's, you know, she's still pretty witty and, and sassy and smarmy here. And, and she makes the most of that. And, but I, you know, sometimes there's a, a kind of a, uh, an adolescent mindset at work and some of the, some of the storyline and plotting, but, but I, you know, 
it's it's not as good as other films of its ilk, but I, I enjoyed it for what it was. Yeah, I didn't enjoy The Lost City very much. <laughs> I mean, I think I probably liked it more than The Jungle Cruise from the year before, which, uh, which you know, was one of The Rock's, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson's projects. Uh, but, uh, yeah, in terms of recent franchises or recent films in the Indiana Jones mold, I think maybe Jumanji is the best of them. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Well, yeah. I mean, Jungle Cruise, I think, is kind of hampered by being so obviously an, an ad for, for Disney World that, yes. uh, that it's hard to get around that. And of course, now we've got a, we have the previously mentioned Haunted Mansion movie coming up and it's oh, enough yeah. with, you know, with these intellectual properties. Uh, and, and, and I do agree that uh, the big problem with this film is probably the romantic hole at the middle of it and that there's not a lot of chemistry no, between there uh, Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum and you know both actors that I like a lot but uh, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of attraction between them other than the fact that you know he sort of saves her you know through his, his kind of bumbling uh, interventions uh, but Apart from that, uh, I don't really see much of a future for these two. Yeah, no, no. And I I just I I think there's an opportunity here to undermine the stereotypes of the alpha male as imagined in a lot of kind of genre fiction. It's not just romance novels, but the movie seems more interested in making fun of Alan's sort of beta qualities. Uh, You know, the arrival of Brad Pitt, he comes and he goes. Unfortunately, he's barely in the movie. And, you know, I really like what Daniel Radcliffe has done with his post-Harry Potter career. And he learned his craft at the feet of great British thespes who made careers as villains in American movies like Alan Rickman and Gary Oldman. But he never goes big enough or mustache twirly enough to make much of an impression here. I think Fairfax at times is so reasonable and has access (laughs) to such resources, you start to wonder why Loretta doesn't just team up with him since they're pretty much... They share the same objective. Um, it's all out of spite at yeah, some point. At some point, yeah. Um, I also thought, again, to to continue to wave my flag against CGI, uh, the, I think the film's ultimate failure is because they, you know, they take the trouble to shoot in the Dominican Republic an actual jungle landscape, but they have frequently cut to obvious in-studio set oh, pieces yeah. that feel totally artificial. So badly it's lit. It's so badly lit. You can't even tell whether it's day or night. And then there's this cheap-looking CGI... At one point, at one point, a character arrives in daytime, but in the next scene, we switch back to night, and the you know it just the whole production felt to me confused and thrown together. So, anyway, well, yeah, I wasn't that much. Yeah, of a fan. Let's, well, let's talk about uh, a film in this vein that we can recommend and both didn't enjoy, and that's uh, the Mummy, not the uh, the terrible Tom Cruise one, but 1999's The Mummy, um, directed by Stephen Summers, who I think prior to this film made kind of the cult action film starring. The late Treat Williams, sadly. Maybe there's another reason to, to seek it out. But Deep Rising, which is a, about a heist on, a, on an ocean liner that also has a uh, kind of a supernatural quality to it. And, um, and, and that, uh, so from that, he went on to directing this kind of start of a misbegotten franchise, shall we say. But there were three, uh, three features plus a spinoff, uh, The Scorpion King, which also gave us Dwayne The Rock Johnson in his first major starring screen role. But I thought The Scorpion King was pretty great. I, I haven't seen it, so I, I feel like I should revisit yeah, it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I, ha- I don't really know the, the sequels to The Mummy. Uh, I know that Dwayne was the villain of the second film, but yes, he, he, he 
spends most of it as a CGI monster, and uh, and I, I remember seeing images from that and going, oh, that doesn't look good. Uh, but but the Scorpion King I watched, actually, I think, speaking of Leanne Gillen, I think she recommended it to me, and I loved it. I thought it was terrific. So well, anyway. I'll take that recommendation. Yeah, yeah. But The Mummy... Uh, yeah, is is really fun. It's it's a lot lighter in some ways, even though it has some pretty scary stuff with like scarabs going under your skin. Yeah, and it stuff. takes the horror heritage of the title pretty seriously. Yeah, it does, but um, but mostly it really doubles down on on casting and casting well with Brendan Fraser as Rick O'Connell, an American in the French Foreign Legion, North Africa in the in the it was set in the 1920s prone to trouble, and then uh, Jonathan Carnahan, played by the excellent John Hanna, who's great in these yes, films. Yes, a lot of fun. He's a bit of a thief. He liberates a box from Rick that contains a map to Hamunaptra, which is this city of the dead in uh, in that has you know, treasures untold. Uh, then he consults with his sister, a librarian, Evelyn, played by Rachel Weiss, who is amazing. And they go looking for a golden book, apparently in a tomb in this fabled city. Of course, I mean, this is I, not to like pick apart the plot issues because these movies rarely make a lot of sense. <laughs> but despite their obvious resources, her learned knowledge and the fact they have the key and the map, why do they need to go and rescue Rick from the gallows? I mean, okay, so he's been there before, but they don't even know that. I don't know if I understood why they needed him or why they couldn't just go themselves to find the city. Yeah, maybe there's a missing scene that explains <laughs> that. Maybe they know they need Maybe they just need someone who's, you know, capable with a gun and yeah. his hands. Because certainly uh, jo- Jonathan and Evelyn aren't capable of that. No, they aren't. But there, it's there's incredible chemistry. All three of them are really great together. And they, of course, there is tons of stuff that they have taken from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, you know, I mean, it is in some ways a bit of a cheap knockoff. But and the computer effects have not aged well. I'm I, once again going to come down on the computer effects in this film, particularly cheap looking. Yes. But so much more of it. And I just. But now they're retro. Yeah, now they're retro. And the enthusiasm with which the filmmakers and the actors attack this work. I mean, there's, I mean, the villain played by Arnold Vosloo is amazing. Imhotep, he is so scary and intense. Um, and yeah, I remember him from Hard Target. That's yeah. where I first saw him. He's great as a bad guy there. So yeah. he got a got a had a good run there as a bunch of bad guys. Indeed, indeed. Oh, and Kevin J. O'Connor as the sniveling Benny. He's also <laughs> pretty great. I mean, there's the 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 care to the characters here is so rich that you love spending time with them. And I think the film goes on a bit long and you know, and there's other issues, but I think for the most part, the mummy really holds up and it's great to see now that uh, Brendan Fraser has had his, is having his second act as a star. Um, it's great fun to go back to watch some of his earlier work. Yeah. It's great to revisit this and kind of wonder now that what's, what's in store for, for Brendan Fraser now that he's kind of, safely ensconced back in the firmament. Maybe he'll uh, make another one of these. Maybe they can get R- Rachel Weiss back. That would be great. Yeah, she she she's in the second one. The second mm-hmm. one, I started watching it, and it was quickly diminishing returns for me. But I never saw the third one, which has Jet Li and Michelle Yeoh in it. So now I'm thinking, oh, okay, I need to see The Mummy 3, which is obviously set in China, and uh, and, and Scorpion King. So I guess I, I should really round out this franchise uh, in my viewing experience. But but yeah, I wonder if Rachel Weiss would come back she she i don't know if she just was done with this after two of them maybe the second one uh you know was was not a great experience for her she wanted to go on to bigger and more serious uh filmmaking or whatever but it'd be be great to see her back uh teamed up with brendan fraser in some because in some regard because they do have they have the chemistry that's missing in the lost city they definitely seem to have it here 
And that brings to an end another edition of Lens Me Your Ears. I hope you enjoyed hacking your way through the cinematic underbrush with the machete of myself and Karsten. Uh, <laughs> I've never been called a machete before. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, get on your motorbike and jump through the flames. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just going back to the character machete. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's also an adventure film in yeah, some regards. But that'd be that'd be a good topic for another another show down the road. But uh, I hope you enjoyed this look at these films and maybe saw some things that you might want to see. And if you're uh, interested in getting back to us, we are of course on Twitter at Lens Be Your Ears, and we have a Facebook page where you can always uh, uh, inquire about the show and about the movies and and that sort of thing. And of course, I'm on Twitter at ns underscore s c o o k e. And Karsten, you're on there as well. With the- I am still for 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 now, as yeah. long as Twitter is still around uh i'm named after you can find me named after my blog flaw in the iris thanks to ckdu for the use of the facilities to record our voices every week and to the village soundcast network for giving us a home on the great wide world wide web thanks and we'll see you next time Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.